The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. If you'll open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, we are just really blessed to be able to return to these scriptures again. And when I spoke on this last week, I said there's one word that I want to start with before I ever begin the message, and that is the word overwhelmed, that I'm just overwhelmed by the amount of teaching that comes out of this particular portion of Scripture, and it is really just impossible for me to give you the full impact of these verses. This is an extremely important part of Scripture. Well, I'm still overwhelmed. I haven't recovered any in the past week, so I'm going to do my best to just tell you what's on my heart today and uh, what the importance of this part of the Word of God is, and then we'll just read the Scriptures and explain what's taking place here. So if you'll look in Matthew chapter 16, we're going to start at verse number 27. If you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Matthew 16, verse number 27 For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. While he had spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Father, thank you for the reading of your word today, and we pray, Lord, you'd open up our hearts to this message. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Our subject, once again today, is the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. The first person to use the English word transfigured in in Bible translation was William Tyndale, And in the 16th century, when uh, Tyndale was dealing with the Hebrew and the Greek text, and actually he was the first one to translate the scriptures from the original Hebrew and Greek text, or uh, copies of those original texts, and he used this word transfigured to describe what happened in this scripture when Jesus was transformed. Transfigured is the best English word that we can use for this, and But it's not really the full expression of what happened. The different gospel writers, when they write about this, uh, they seem to be at a loss to adequately describe exactly what happened when Jesus was transformed, transfigured on that mountain. 
Mark describes the brightness of his clothing, saying that they became exceeding white as snow. Luke says that his countenance was altered. And here in Matthew, it says his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as light. So this was just a magnificent scene that was before the apostles when Jesus was transfigured there. And what they saw made an indelible impression on their minds. This was an event that stuck with them throughout all of the hardships of their ministries. And this was one of Jesus' chief purposes in taking them up on the mountain. He'd just given them a prophecy about his suffering and his death. And that was really a severe blow to their hopes that the kingdom would come. Peter was especially dejected because in his misunderstanding of Christ's current mission upon the earth, he said to Jesus that, Lord, you should not go to Jerusalem in order to die. He he didn't want Jesus to be killed. And that's when the Lord turned to him and he said, Get thee behind me, Satan. And you can well imagine how, how demoralized and dispirited that Peter was when he received such a harsh rebuke from the Savior. But this is really one of the wonderful characteristics of Jesus. He knows who we are. He knows our minds. He knows how little understanding that we have of the things of God. As he said to Peter, Peter, you think like a man. And he knows that we think like men, that we're really not capable of understanding these great things of God. And so how deeply had their hearts sunk at this news. And so in a, in, a, in a loving display of compassion, Jesus began to explain how that how his kingdom was right on track. That none of his plans would be upset. Nothing is going to be altered because he must go to the cross. But the suffering and the death that he would experience there would actually set up his triumphant return in glory. And so he took them beyond the words... Beyond just telling them what he would do, he gave them a visual demonstration of his kingdom and he was transformed before them in a blazing light. So the kingdom was on the disciples' minds. It was also on the mind of Jesus because that was his purpose in coming to the world. He came in order to reconcile man to God and to bring everybody under the righteous rule of heaven's great king. And so, knowing their dejection, we we have verses 27 and 28 in that 16th chapter in which Jesus gave them a renewed promise of the kingdom. Now, he told them again what had so often been said in Old Testament scripture. And the purpose was to build their faith. These men were to be the apostles of the church. And of course, Jesus built the church upon himself. He said that he is the rock, but these apostles would be a foundation of the church as well. And they had to be sure and steadfast in their faith. They had to have a right foundation because the church must stand on them as well. And so Jesus told them, the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father. And with that statement, Jesus was once again declaring his deity. He's saying to them, I am God. And so they were in the presence of God. And the glory of the Father that he said that he would come in, that was really the full display of God's attributes. Jesus said, this is the way I will come. I will come in the power of God. I will come with my angels. And what he was doing was giving them a renewed promise of that kingdom, so many times spoken of in the Old Testament. 1,500 times in the Old Testament, the prophets spoke of the coming kingdom. 
Now, they didn't really understand uh, too much about the difference between the first and the second coming. It all seems to blend together in the Old Testament prophecies. And so this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus very clearly told them that there is going to be a second coming. That not everything is going to take place that they're expecting in this first time that he comes to the world. And so he clearly tells them that now he's headed for the cross. That the present ministry is that he would be a sin offering. That the kingdom is not yet, but there is a promise. Praise God that the kingdom is coming. And that's the very same hope that you and I have today. In Matthew 16, 24 through 26, we learn there about the hardships of discipleship. We learn what it was going to be like for Christians in the world, that there would be pain and there would be suffering. And Jesus said, there's a cross that's coming for you before there comes a crown. And so there would be much pain, but that pain would give way to the gain. And here's where we see the gain. Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. The Apostle John said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so the pain gives way to the gain, and Jesus did not want them to lose sight of the kingdom. And keeping that glorious vision in their minds would keep them true to the faith, and that would help them to endure all of the suffering that would come. The old song says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. And that's the message that Jesus is trying to get across. So he renewed the promise of the kingdom. The cross would not be the defeat of the kingdom, but rather it would be the glorious signal that he triumphed over sin, death, and hell. Well, we need to go a little bit further into the passage today and talk uh, more about the particulars of it because I I just think it's a fascinating study. And and perhaps you'd never thought of it this way, but here we are sitting in this room today and we're waiting for the kingdom of God to come. It's a great expectation that we have that Christ will bring his kingdom. But did you know that there was a time when God's kingdom did come to the earth? Because Jesus says right here, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so we move into the 17th chapter of Matthew, and here is where we find a royal preview of the coming kingdom. Verse number 1 says, And after six days... Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth him up into a high mountain apart. Now let's remember the setting for this particular scripture, the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of the 17th. Jesus and his disciples were in the far northern part of Israel. They were in Caesarea Philippi. And that is located at the base of Israel's highest mountain. On the border between Israel and Lebanon, there is Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is uh, a mountain that's 9,200 feet. And so in the background of what's taking place there is this huge mountain. Now, there is quite a bit of controversy over the location of the Transfiguration. And that's because the Bible doesn't tell us exactly where it was. And one of the popular opinions about this since the 3rd century is that Mount Tabor is the place where the Transfiguration took place. Now, that's a few days' walk away from Caesarea Philippi. It's down in the uh, lower part of Galilee, not far from Nazareth. 
And it's really interesting that on Mount Tabor, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Catholics have built churches, have built shrines there to commemorate Moses and Elijah. And that's really the same, pardon my language, but stupid idea that that Peter had because that's not what God intended. I mean, it's not likely that Mount Tabor is the location anyway because at the time that uh, Jesus lived... Mount Tabor had a fortress that was on top of it, so there was no place for Jesus and the disciples to go to be alone. So rather, it's more likely that Jesus uh, was still in the area of Caesarea Philippi, and perhaps on one of those peaks that's in the range of Mount Hermon, that Jesus went up there, and that's where the transfiguration takes place. In the book of Luke, it tells us that Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. And it was his custom when he prayed that he would pray for a long time. And it was the custom of the disciples when they went with Jesus when he prayed that they would fall asleep. And that's what they did. While he was praying, they fell asleep. And that's when the transfiguration began. Well, let's use a little reasoning here. When do you go to sleep? You go to sleep at night, don't you? And so the transfiguration took place at night in the stillness and the blackness of the night there in Galilee with no, or northern Galilee, no ambient light such as we have in our cities, with no other light to be a distraction, this brilliant transformation of Jesus began. And I can't imagine what it must have been like on that mountain in the darkness of it to see a bright light of the shining glory of God as Jesus was changed to show that glory of the Father. Now, returning here to our text verses, it says, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as light. Now, I'd like to take a few minutes today to talk to you about this royal preview of the kingdom What is it that Jesus intended to show his disciples with this? I think there are six purposes that we can identify. Now, since this was such a magnificent display, there are probably many more purposes in it than we can find than those. But I'm going to give you six of these that I I identified as I looked through this text. What was Jesus' purpose in being transfigured? I think we would have to say, first of all, that it was a demonstration of his deity. And I don't think that we really have to spend too much time on this part of his purpose because we can't miss this, that a transformation like this would leave no doubt in anybody's mind that he truly was God. The miracles that Jesus performed, that really didn't convince the people that he was God. The power to cast out demons that he had power over the spiritual world, that didn't even convince them that he was God. Pharisees used the excuse that he was using the power of Satan to cast out Satan's demons. So you might wonder, why didn't Jesus do this in front of everybody? Why didn't Jesus let everybody see his glory? Then surely everybody would know that he was the Son of God and that he was the glorified one. Well, if Jesus had done that, there wouldn't have been a cross. The movement to make him a king right then would have swelled to enormous proportions and no one would have ever put Jesus on a cross if he'd allowed to see everybody, if everybody was allowed to see that glory. 
This is what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. He said, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of the world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So a public demonstration of this would have defeated his purpose in coming into the world... And this is why he told Peter, James, and John, don't you say anything about this. You find that in verse number 9. He said, don't tell anybody about this. And they didn't until Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And so his deity was clearly seen in this. His kingship was seen. He's a mighty king of glory. And if they had any smidgen of a doubt, it should have been removed. Now, you would think that the disciples would already be clear about this. He had multiplied the bread and the fish. He raised the dead. He calmed storms that were on the sea. Isn't that enough to convince somebody that he's God? Well, apparently, they didn't have all of the faith and the confidence they should have had because you remember when Jesus was crucified, he appeared to them before they realized what had happened, and they said, we trusted that he would have been the one which would have redeemed Israel. So even this event was for their future reference. The meaning of it would not become completely clear to them until after the resurrection. So his deity was in view. But I think more important than his deity is what this says about his humanity. That it was a demonstration of his victorious humanity. See, who could could believe that this person that came from such humble beginning should actually be a king? How difficult was it to believe that a king would be born in a stable? How difficult to believe that he would live in a notorious little town like Nazareth? How difficult was it to believe that the king could be employed in a carpenter's shop? How difficult was it to see him as a king when instead of robes of purple and scarlet, he wore the rough clothing of peasants? How difficult was it to call him a king when the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? How difficult was it to call him king when he was taken into Pilate's judgment hall and he was condemned as a criminal and put on a cross? They mocked him when he said that he was a king. And when he did wear a crown, and when he did have a purple robe, that crown of thorns and the robe were articles of contempt. In John 19, John said, and the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. So what was the transfiguration? It was a demonstration of his victorious humanity. Who could believe that the Son of God had hidden his glory in the form of a servant? You know, there are some that say that the real miracle was, uh, the real miracle of the incarnation was that Christ could so long hide his glory. That he didn't actually perform a new miracle here, but what he did was to cease to do an ongoing miracle. That he allowed the glory of God to come shining out of his flesh. The real miracle was the ability for Jesus to hide that glory for so long when this glory was pulsating to get out from him. A beautiful picture that we have of this is the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. The glory of God was seen in the Shekinah. And this is when a brilliant light glowed on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. 
of the glory of God was separated from the rest of the tabernacle by a veil that hung there. There was a curtain there and that could only be passed through by the high priest one time per year on the day of atonement. Hebrews says that this veil represented the flesh of Jesus Christ. And it was only when that veil was pushed aside could the glory of God be seen. And so the priest would push aside the veil and would go in to make the, uh, the, the offering of blood and put that on the mercy seat in the, in the ta- on the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. Now you can imagine how mesmerized that the disciples must have been to see what they had never been able to see before because he appeared to be so simple and so weak in his humanity but in that flesh, housed in that flesh was really the power and the glory of God. Thirdly, there was a demonstration of his verity. The transfiguration showed that Jesus was telling the truth. Could they really believe what he claimed? That he was the son of man, that he could actually come in the glory of the Father? How could they be assured and have complete confidence in him that he was telling the truth? See, the Jews were familiar with many false Christs. Every few years, someone would come along and claim to be the Messiah. These false Christs would gain a following. It was a common thing to happen, and every time one of them came along, they proved to be false. Gamaliel said that, Many boasted that they had been sent from God, but Gamaliel's advice to the Jewish people was just stand back a little bit, just wait a little bit while, a little while, it'll come to nothing. And many thought that Jesus was just another of these false Christ. Today, we still have people that claim that they are the Messiah. Reverend Moon said that he was the Messiah. William Davies, a Mormon, said that he was the reincarnated Christ. You may remember a few years ago, that David Koresh said that he was the Messiah. Well, what makes Jesus so different from them? Well, we could probably list a lot of things, but we could certainly know this. He told the truth. A real prophet always tells the truth. Now, the prophets in the Old Testament often made predictions of far-off events. They said, now here is what, going, what is going to happen, and this thing that they prophesied may not come to pass for hundreds of years. So how were people to believe that what they said was actually true? How did they show they were telling the truth? Well, the prophets would also give a prophecy that had a near fulfillment. They would prophesy something that would happen in their lifetime, maybe not too far off. And then when that came true, the people would say, that person must be a true prophet. And so they would believe the long-term prophecy. Well, could we say that what Jesus was doing here was just carrying out the convention of the Old Testament prophets? Because he told the disciples that he would come in the glory of his Father and that he was coming with angels, that he would bring the kingdom with him. So how were they to believe that long-term prophecy? As we know, that prophecy was 2,000 years at least. We're still waiting for it to happen. We don't know when it will happen. How are we to know that that's true, especially how could they know it when he didn't look like a king? Well, here's the proof of it. He took them up on this mountain and he showed them his glory. And what he did was to confirm the predictions that they were certain for fulfillment. And that's what separates Jesus from all the others. Do you know this about Christianity? That Christianity, we talk about faith, but our faith in Christ is never a blind leap into the dark. No, we have the things that Jesus said and did. There are things that are written in the word of God that verify that he was telling the truth. 
Fourthly, there was a demonstration of his superiority. I, I find this one to be intensely interesting because now as we get into this, things are really starting to get good. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. Now the disciples had been asleep. They saw Jesus in his glory. They woke up and there he was with two men that were talking with him. And those two men were Moses and Elijah. Almost everybody that reads this asks the question, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Moses had been dead for 1,400 years. Elijah was dead 900 years, but actually Elijah didn't die, and I'll explain to you in a moment why that is important. But both of them were long gone, so how did they know who these two men were? Well, here's the result of my study, and I want you to mark the brilliant answer to it. I don't know. I don't know. They just knew. And that's not a problem for me because if Jesus could come in glory, if he could hide his, his glory underneath his humanity, I have no trouble believing that he was able to make them understand who Moses and Elijah were. But I can tell you some things about it and, and things that I think that really ought to make you happy because here is a great indication that we're going to know each other when we get to heaven. You know, some people will say to me, if I don't see you again in this life, I'll see you in heaven. And sometimes I reply, not if I see you first. But this is wonderful because we know this. We are going to see our loved ones. And I'm waiting to see my dad again. I mean, I'm waiting for that time that I'll be able to see him and, and he'll recognize me and I'll recognize him. I have family members and friends that have died And one of the greatest joys of heaven is to know that if they are believers in Jesus Christ, that we will see them there. And that's a good cause for you to tell all of your friends and your relatives about Jesus because the only way that you'll ever see them again after death is if they know him as Savior. And then I think that we're going to meet all the great Bible uh, people in the Bible too. I, I, I really want to meet Peter and Paul. I would really like to meet King David. I even want to meet Zacchaeus because I want to see if he looks anything like Jorge. This was Moses and Elijah on this mountain. Now, why were Moses and Elijah there? Well, I think we could take an educated guess on it, and maybe I don't think we would be too far off to see that Moses was there because he is the representative of the law. Moses is always identified with the law. Elijah was one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, one who did great miracles. And Elijah represents the prophets. Whenever the Bible speaks about the coming of Christ, which one of the prophets is always associated with the coming of Christ? Who is that? That's Elijah. In the, in the last verses of the Bible, in the book of Malachi, it tells us there that Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And that's a prophecy about Jesus' second coming. So we have Moses and the law. We have Elijah and the prophets. And why is that so significant? Well, they're there. Moses is there because the law kept pointing to Christ. 
See, the law is more than just Ten Commandments. The law was also the ceremonies and the sacrifices. The law was the tabernacle and all the worship of Israel. And the law always points to Jesus Christ as the way of salvation. And so those sacrifices and those ceremonies, they spoke of Jesus Christ. And they said, there is another sacrifice that is coming. There is a once-for-all sacrifice that will take away sins forever. And that's Moses. He's the testimony of the law about Jesus Christ. Elijah is there because he represents the prophets. And the Old Testament said, the prophets said 1,500 times, the king is coming. And Elijah is there to say, and here he is. The king is here. Now, do you know why else it's significant? These two represent two great classes of saints of God. Moses represents those that died before Jesus comes again. See, all that die, believing in Jesus, they go into the grave, and then they're raised at the second coming. And Jesus takes them into heaven. When the Son of Man comes, he'll raise all believers that have died with their faith in the Lord. But Elijah was different than Moses. He never died. You read the scriptures and you find that when God was ready to take him, he took him up in a chariot of fire. He took Elijah up and he never died. There was never a funeral for Elijah. And the Bible also says that when Jesus comes back, all of those who believe in him, all of those that are alive will be caught up. They'll be raptured to meet the Lord in the air. They never die. Paul wrote, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. That's the ones represented by Moses. Then we which are alive and remain, those represented by Elijah, we are, we are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Isn't that a great promise? Moses and Elijah are there to show that there is a resurrection coming for all that believe in Christ. And the critical factor in that is, do you believe in Jesus? I mean, there is no heaven except through him. And he promises that if you believe in him, he will take you there. That he's not going to leave even one single person behind. And then while I'm giving you reasons for Moses and Elijah, you might take note of this. It also proves that there's life after death. These men were dead and now they are alive. The body will be raised. There is life after death. But did you know this? That there is only life after death for Christians? Christians will have life after death. And I suppose that's why Pharaoh didn't appear with Moses with his arm draped around him. Only those who know Jesus Christ, who are believers, will have life after death. The Bible never talks about the lost who do not know Jesus Christ as having life after death. You know what it says about them? They have death after death. They have a conscious existence. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying they're annihilated. I'm not saying they go out of existence. But the Bible always talks of it as being death. There is a second death. And that is eternal consciousness in the fires of hell. Now, there's another reason for Moses and Elijah. Verse 3 says that they were talking with Jesus. What were they talking about? Well, to find the answer to that, we go to the Gospel of Luke. And this is what Luke wrote. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory, and spake of his decease 
which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So what are they talking about? Well, they're talking about the decease of Christ, and this was going to happen in, the Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. Now, folks, that word decease is just a tremendously interesting word because it actually comes directly, directly translated out of the, the original language. It's the word exodus. It's the same word as exodus. It means the departing. It's a departure just like we talk about the exodus of the children of Israel uh, uh, from Egypt. So Moses and Elijah were talking about this departure of Jesus from the world, his exodus from the world. And that was a very important subject because that told the disciples that the crucifixion was not the end of him. That he's not going to stay in the grave. The crucifixion is not to be dreaded. It's not the end. The cross is actually the exodus of Christ out of this world. And what does that do? It sets up his return in glory. The very thing that he's trying to show them here. So Moses and Elijah are there discussing with him the death of Christ on the cross that he's going to leave this world and he is coming back in the power and glory of his father. Now there's something else that you need to see and it's really the main thing that we ought to get with this point. And Moses and Elijah appeared to show the superiority of Christ. That Jesus is superior to the law. He's superior to the prophets. And wouldn't you know that Peter opened his mouth and almost ruined this extremely vital truth? Jesus had spent a great deal of his ministry pointing out his superiority to the law. The Sermon on the Mount proved that. And then uh, as far as him being a prophet, there were many people that thought he was a prophet. Jesus asked the disciples, who do they say that I am? And they said, well, some say that you are Elijah. Some say that you're Jeremiah. Some say that you are one of the prophets. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, speaking for the entire group, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Now we look at what Peter said here. He woke up from his sleep and Luke says that Peter had no idea what he was saying. And so in verse number four, it says, Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make three tabernacles. That means tents or booths. Let's make one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. So Peter said, Lord, I have a great idea. Let's make some little booze. Let's set up some tents. Let's, let's make some shrines. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Folks, that was really a dumb thing to say. Because what Peter had done, he had just pushed Jesus down to the level of the law and of the prophets, the very opposite of what this was intended to show. And the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox, they put their 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 temple or their, their, their churches up there on Mount Tabor for Moses and Elijah. And they must have just woke up from a wild and crazy dream because that's not what God intended. And then Luke says that Peter said, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make these booze. Let us make these tabernacles for you three. And his intention was to say, let's just camp out here. Let's just stay here. And you know what that would do? Jesus would never get to the cross that way. And so here is Peter once again with the same thought in his mind that he had before, the same one that was implanted by Satan. And he's saying here, Jesus, you don't need to go to the cross. Let's just stay here. 
Well, we see what happens next. There's a fifth lesson learned in the royal preview of the kingdom, and that is a demonstration of his authority. Let me read to you from Luke. And it came to pass as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Did you know there were days when Peter did not want to be Peter? Have you ever had a day like that? It says, while he thus spake. You know what that means? That means that Peter wasn't done talking yet. Peter had something else that he wanted to say. I mean, he had something profound, apparently, that he wanted to say. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Now, can I give you that? New International Smith Version again, the translation of that. This is God speaking from heaven and saying, Peter, shut up. Just shut up. The Father is talking here. He says, Peter, you are in the presence of the glorified Christ. You're seeing the greatest manifestation of the glory of God that the world has ever seen. What are you doing talking? Be quiet. Listen. The father said, hear Jesus, he's the beloved son, listen to him. And that is the same voice that spoke at his baptism, that was the father. He said, listen to him because he is the one that has authority. And this is what Jesus said at his ascension, at his departure, at his exodus from the world. What did he say? All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So Peter was having one of those characteristic bad days. And to think that Roman Catholicism says that he's the first pope, it's a good explanation why they're wrong on so many things. Now let's take the sixth one, and we'll hurry a little bit here. There was also a demonstration of his mediatory work. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Now, how important is that last verse? That they lifted up their eyes and they saw no man but Jesus only. Moses was gone. The law can't help you. Your good works can't help you. They're never going to be good enough because the law can only do one thing. It can condemn you. That's it. Elijah was gone. He can't help you. The best preachers and the godliest men could do nothing for your soul. There is no priest that can forgive you. There is no bishop that can absolve you. There is no cardinal that can give you penance. There is no pope that can intercede for you. There is no one to help you but Jesus. And so when you lift up your eyes, you must see Jesus only. And when you lift up your eyes, you must see Jesus hanging on a cross. They're bleeding and dying for our sins. He went to the cross, and that cross precipitated the exodus from the world, and he went there to die to save us from our sins. So how are we ever going to see the king in glory? How are we going to come into his glory? The answer is you have to walk to the cross. And when you go to the cross, he takes all the fear away. The disciples feared because they had come into the presence of the holy God. And you see, they knew enough about Old Testament scripture. They knew enough of the way that things worked that they could not come into the presence of God without a sacrifice. 
And so they bowed their eyes to the ground and they felt that at any moment they were going to be crushed beneath the weight of the glory of God. Nobody sees the glory of God and lives. But as the shadow or the cloud passed over them, they looked up and they saw Jesus only. That Jesus was the only mediator that could reconcile them to God. And that's what Jesus did. You can't look anywhere else. You can't go anywhere else. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So we see here deity, humanity, verity, superiority, authority, his mediatory work. And what Jesus did was to give them a royal preview of his kingdom. The most important thing for you today is how do you get in that kingdom? How will you see Jesus again? How will you see the glory of God? It's only by faith in what he did on the cross of Calvary. You must trust him to see Jesus in glory. Let's pray. Father, we are awed by this scripture. There, there is so much here. We, we could take every one of these points and we could develop a sermon on each one and we could still not exhaust everything that needs to be said about this passage. Here is the great hope for your people that you are coming back and you proved it. You, you showed a demonstration of your glory that cannot be denied. Lord, help us to look at this and say our faith is well placed. Our faith is in the only one who can help us. It's in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you as Savior today, that they may realize who you are, that they'll understand to see you in glory, they must have their faith in you. Help us as Christians that we live this life, that we are testimonies for the kingdom of God, and that we tell people the only way that they can see Jesus in glory. Bless us as we sing today. We give you praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.